All right, Dennis, thank you so much for being here. Super excited. Yeah, happy to be here, man. Of course. So let's get started at the very beginning. You had mentioned to me you grew up in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. I want to hear all about the local scene you grew up in, your introduction into alternative music. Tell me everything. Okay. Uh, well, Winston-Salem uh, was kind of like the big tobacco hub for a long time. It's where like RJR cigarettes are from and so obviously it is kind of a dying tobacco town. So it was one of those places where the only thing to do on the weekends was go and hang out at Borders Books. That was like the thing everyone did. So uh, that was good for the music scene because that was like the big thing is like going to shows and everything. We were, so when I was in high school, it was 2000 to 2004. And there was a really big uh, straight edge metal core was like the thing going on in Winston. And so some of the bands that came out of that were uh, Between the Buried Me is from my town. I mean, there was playing their early shows then. And uh, bands like, a lot of people aren't going to know them, uh, Prayer for Cleansing and Undying. And just like, it was it was metalcore, but it had a very North Carolina flavor. So it had a lot of kind of classical influence to it too. It was very pretty metal. So um yeah, dude, that's like all we did. Me and my friends uh, played D&D and Warhammer and then went to metal shows. And like that was my life in high school. And uh, it's crazy because I, I posted on Instagram recently about this. But so when I went to high school, I would show up in like a gas mask and coveralls. I was a Slipknot kid. That's where I started. I started from kind of like new metal. And then I hung out with uh, one of my friends to go play Warhammer and his big brother put on a band called Undying. And his big brother was a big part of the straight edge metal community. And I, I fell in love. It was the first time I heard music with like real screaming in it. And so I finally went to an Undying show and it was one of those things where everybody wears like black hoodies and bandanas and we're like hardcore dancing. And I roll up in my like lock and chain necklace and my Jinkos and like I stood out like a sore thumb. And so I had to leave before the headliner, but the front man of Undying came and waited for me on the loading dock when I was waiting for my mom to pick me up and talk to me for like 15 minutes because he like could tell I was like so out of place. And I was like, I want to be part of the music scene. Like I want to scream. I want to be with this. And so he like literally changed the course of my life just by like hanging out. So yeah. And music has been such, such a, a motivator in my life. And so I think about that moment when I meet kids at our shows. So let's, let's talk about that. So it obviously affected you in the way that it affected me. We took very different paths, but I think it's so fascinating because Alisana speaking specifically has a super passionate fan base, a cult fan base. Like one of my close friends in college was obsessed. And I remember, yes. tell me, <laughs> tell me about that trajectory. So here you are, you're enjoying the scene and then you decide you want to start a band. Was that band Alisana or did you find yourself on a trajectory that led there? Oh, absolutely not. Uh, so I started a metalcore band in high school with my friends uh, because I accidentally figured out how to scream. Because I'm a visual artist. Hands down, like, I was vice president of the National Art Honor Society. Like, all I did was, like, screen print stuff and then, like, do visual art. And I had a crush on a girl in high school, and she couldn't hang out with me because she was doing the Rocky Horror Picture Show. So I volunteered to be riffraff with no background in singing or acting or anything. So I had to figure out how to do that, like, gravelly singing voice. Like, I remember. And I accidentally did a low growl. And I was like, oh, 
that's it. And so I started the band with my like high school buddies that like I was just nerds, nerd friends with. And um, so I did that in high school. And then I went to college. I went to college for product design and material science. And it was, you know, everything was fine. I was just bored in my free time. I'm like, I'm going to start like a death metal band while I'm here. Like I moved to from Winston-Salem to Raleigh, North Carolina. And at that, like literally I posted something on MySpace about it. And within that week, I met Sean because Sean was working at a restaurant I ate at and asked like my server to come over and ask me if I was a band because I had a look. I'm like, no, like I wasn't a band, but you know, I can't be in this jazz band. Like I'm a screamer. Like that's what I do. <laughs> so um, the rest is history. So I'm like, yeah, it was totally just kind of like stumbled into Ellis and like, and I like the guys, but uh, like I'm a metalhead and those like Sean and Pat who, uh, you know, started the band with me, they're pop punk kids. And so we were like, okay, let's kind of slam it together. What's that going to sound like? And back then, I was like, well, it could sound like Evergreen Terrace. It could sound, uh, you know, like a Treyu. Like, these are the versions of, like, what screaming and singing sound like. So we just kind of, like, went for it. So, yeah, when we, when we, you know, we played shows. I was having fun. And then uh, I decided to take it a little more seriously. Like, I've always been an academic nerd. My grades were fine, everything. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to pause college because I want to look back and I want to see, like, pictures of me, like, you know, traveling the country with my band for a little bit. And so I decided to pause college and try the band for a minute. And uh, we're creeping up on 20 years later now. So. 20 years later, it's, you know, I, I have to make mention of how quickly the time has gone by. It felt like this generation of the scene would have never gotten old. Like everyone we knew, it feels like would have never entered adulthood. And yet here we are. It's kind of crazy. Know, right? Yeah, it, but, it is um, fun. So let's get into let's get into Alisana and talking about the nuances. You know, I'm curious about a few different things, but I'm curious yeah. about what inspires your music. I'm curious how you blend narrative with your musical style and what your personal approach has been to developing your vocal parts. Yeah, so uh early on so I've always been as I've alluded to, a bit of a nerd. I'm a bookworm like uh, Wheel of Time Lord of the Rings, like all the monstrous, like high fantasy. Oh, I love it. And my wife is actually, I mean, she's 10 times worse than I am. She was a manager at a bookstore. And like, so that's just the kind of like people I surround myself. And I love reading. And Sean went to college for English. So the Sean's the, the singer and guitarist and co-writer with me. And so books were, it just came up when we started the band. And our first couple albums you can kind of see literature show its face a little bit as we were finding ourselves musically. And cause we had, you know, our EP, which is pretty just let's write some songs. And then uh, after that, we had on frail wings of vanity and wax, which is a direct reference to Icarus. And then we kind of threw some Greek mythology in there. And then we started realizing that we were having a lot of fun kind of like, reinventing these old stories and like just filling our songs with like literature references because we were having kids come up and be like oh it's like is this a reference to that I'm like yeah like if you're, like sure so when you said your your friend was like a a, a cult fan i think yes. that's why i think it's because it's just like we just load it with easter eggs and i think it's like the greatest trick in the book because now we write like okay like this album is based on dante's inferno and a bunch of kids just seen kids are going to go pick up this like 
hundreds and hundreds of year old poem and read it. And it's awesome because it's like, you get to like, dude, like all these classics are classics for a reason and they lose uh, interest just because of, you know, the modern times and like, who's going to pick that up and read it for now, but it doesn't lose context. And there's like still so much. And um, so, yeah, so we've, we decided like, let's do that. Let's take our approach and especially kind of play off of what we've got. Cause you've got Sean singing me screaming, so you've got two different points of view that are kind of already given with vocal style. So you can play devil's advocate in the songs lyrically and weave it like that. So it is, it makes it a lot more complex, especially when we jumped from writing each song based on one part and then doing to each album as a concept. And then we did the three album concept. So you, it's a lot of, work on the back end, structuring things so the story kind of flows and then figuring out how you push a narrative forward lyrically and still have it not just be us reading you a story, you know? So we've managed to kind of uh, release some prose versions with albums. And then we actually, for the our big one, the Annabelle trilogy, we wrote a book and there's like a book version of it too that references back. So we try to give kids as many options as far as you want to dig into it, you know? It sounds fantastic. And I find the concept of using long format lyrics to weave narratives incredibly compelling, um, very intellectually stimulating, especially in today's trend of shorter attention spans. Could you expand a little bit more on that? Could you share more about how you craft these narratives and the challenges involved in keeping your audience engaged in the TikTok era effectively? Yeah, it was, I mean, I'm not going to lie. It was not going well, dude. Like, let's say 2018, we were definitely, you could tell, man, like when you're playing live shows, that's a tough sell to kids that have like literally a rectangle in their pocket with all the entertainment in the world. Attendance was down, you know, kids had become, I don't want to say shy at shows. They were less like, I mean, it's, that's what it felt like. They were more self-conscious about themselves and stuff. And you're, sure. it, it was definitely, but the kids that were there really wanted to be there, you know, and that's what offering something that's a little bit different than uh, modern content, which is this like huge, complex, like behemoth of like songs and albums and stuff. The kids that like felt like that needed to fill a void, like are just crazy about it. So that was amazing. And then COVID happened which was a blessing in disguise because suddenly everyone was separated from each other and all you could get was digital content and these like remote abstract things. And then when shows came back, it was like people realized how badly they missed that just being in the moment, being like pushed up against people and the energy of like a live show that's like just human, human interaction. And so it came back like with a vengeance which is, you know, the one silver lining out of the whole thing. So I think it was kind of a shot across the bow for just strictly digital content that like, there's still so much to the, the physical act of performing and being there and everything. And so, you know, it was, it was definitely uh, a shift. And so when I saw kids coming back out and, you know, it was great. And I think people, I think we, we pulled a lot of new fans that hadn't, you know, been into the live music scene, decided to give it a shot and everything. And then 
I don't think a lot of kids on paper realize, especially like, cause you know, we're not an arena band, you know, that you can go to a show, you can see this band and then you can like shake the hand of the dude that was just up there. And like, he's right there, sure. like right in front of you. And so it's just, uh, you know, it's been awesome. So I think that uh, helps pull people in. Like I've always said, like, even if you, you're not into our genre or anything like that, we, we go out of our way to put on a very over the top live show. You'll be entertained one way or another. And I think that's still one of my favorites now is meeting kids, you know, obviously our fans who are there, but people who are like, I had never heard of you. I had never seen you. And I had so much fun. I'm like, dude, that's like the biggest compliment in the world. It's a performer because you just, you just want one more. That's one more tally on the list, you know? Well, that's certainly a sensible and it, Makes me want to kind of go back, you know, into what inspires you personally. Uh, stepping back for a second, your background growing up around craftsmen and tradesmen uh, is very interesting. How you'd mentioned that to me previously. How has that yeah. influenced Alasana's mission to preserve classic literature? But perhaps just how has that influenced Alasana as a whole growing up in that environment? Yeah. So uh, I guess to put it in context, so my parents are much older. Um, my dad. He was, he was born in 1941. So that's just, a, and I'm from Winston-Salem, North Carolina. So this old Southern man. And he owned a custom truck building company that I grew up around. So he's got a picture, little redneck boy, me, you know, toddling into these places. And it's just the equipment that is in there. I mean, I think the company started in like 1915 or something. The equipment is like World War One era, like giant metal brakes, like, machines that are the size of half a building that are like cutting steel and these dudes like welding shooting sparks and everything and like so i got this like fantasy idea pretty much of like welders and mechanics and stuff like that like they, they were like you know like greek gods of like just oh. and it was amazing and then my mom is like i grew up with a loom like a full-size loom in my living room she was a weaver. We have like, she has a long arm sewing machine now, which is like a 15 foot long. So I was like, and between that crocheting, knitting, my sister went to college for fiber arts. And it's like all of these heirloom craft trades. My other sister's like a ceramicist, which are just so interesting to me because it is the art of repetition, which is just so unsexy in today's day and age where I feel like everybody's mission is to cast the widest net possible and to put the most hats on. And it's the opposite. It's put the one hat on and put it on a thousand times in a row. Yep. And I always think about, uh, there's a documentary called Hero Dreams of Sushi. I don't know if you've ever seen it. It's I know about, the one, yes. Yeah, everyone should watch it. It's about a dude who just makes sushi just for his entire life. And now I think the the end result was him owning the uh, the most expensive restaurant per square foot in the world. It was like this tiny little place that makes sushi just because like he's obsessed with it. He's mastered it. He's just done it so many times. He's picked apart every nitty gritty little detail. And it's just like turned, it turns into art just, and there's almost like a meditation to repeating the same process over and over and over. So, you know, and I think there's so much to be said for a lot of those crafts because especially with like, let's say with like quilting or something like the value of a quilt is, is the time that went into it and then getting it. Like when you get a quilt from your grandma, it's priceless. It be, is beyond 
any value to anyone else. Like you couldn't buy it off of you. And it has, so it's like, especially in a capitalist society, it has somehow transcended that. And it's because of like the labor of love and that whole concept. And so I think by using the methods of like, of these traditional, like, okay. So like, obviously these old things aren't valuable in and of itself, but it's, it has a value outside of like a capitalist concept is what I'm trying to get to. And so we try to go back and that's what, so my craft is lyrics. And so I try to use literature that has stood the test of time that is already out there to interpret it. The techniques we use are not far apart for like, cause I wrote a lot of poetry when I was in middle school and I was like obsessed with like structure and like sonnets and like Shakespearean sonnets and stuff like that. So now adapting that to screaming because of screaming, you're really not, you don't have melody, you know? So now you've got to work with rhythm and pattern. And I actually draw a lot of like inspiration from like hip hop and stuff. Cause that's a technique that's available there too, because there's no melody. So your rhythm pattern and try to use that to carry through and update things that I think have been around for a long time and have value and bring it to the modern audience. You just articulated that in such a nuanced way. I have <laughs> never heard it articulated that way. <laughs> That's, like which I'm is so incredible. It's a lyricist for you. <laughs> no, it's perfect. I think a lot of people are going to find such value in hearing that. So let's, let's continue that train of thought. You have mentioned you consider yourself a romantic in the sense that there's nothing more powerful than a champion of a lost cause. Could you oh, expound 100%. upon that? Yeah, 100%. And that's what, uh, you know, that's one of those things like, uh, so it's, it is, it, especially in today's day and age, it's just because everything, everything doesn't have to be a side hustle. And like, I'm just mm -hmm. like, so especially, and so, like I said, I had a much older dad, he owned a company and everything. And so I grew up going into him like, okay, I've got to be my own boss. Like I've got to like hustle, hustle, hustle. I'm like. It took me a while to realize, like, no, you don't. Like, hobbies can just be hobbies, man. <laughs> like, real talk. Like, every time, like, you start something new and people are just like, wow, like, have you thought about this? And I'm like, yeah, but just don't. You know, do it. <laughs> like, do some stuff for you. And that's okay. You don't have to be the boss. That's okay. There's a lot of value. There's a lot to be said. And especially, like, you know, uh, when I'm not on tour, uh, like I said, my, my romantic view of, of working with your hands and everything. So I screen print. I've, that's what I did in visual art back in the day. And there was a certain point, I think I was on warp tour and I realized like every front man had started his own clothing company. I was like, it sounds like someone's got to be making all of those shirts. I'm like, I wonder how you do that. So for the last 10 years, like when I'm not on tour, uh, I screen print t-shirts. Like I print all the merch for the band and stuff like that. So I'm like physically generating the products. And there's that point in everybody's, uh, career with screen printing where you're like, all right, I know enough. Let me do my own thing. And I went and I did it for a little bit. And I was like, I absolutely hate this. Like I hate being, I have no free time. Like, and that's what people's misconception about being your own boss is like, Oh, like you don't have a boss. I'm like, no, dude, you have a hundred bosses. They're called the customers. It's like, you, it is the yes. opposite. Like it is, it is such a time. Sick. I sold all my equipment and I'm lucky because in town, uh, I have two friends who own a screen printing company, one of which used to print for Alice Santa, one of which I went to high school with. 
I'm like, can I just pick up a job there when I'm not on tour? Like, we would love to, we would love to have you. And it's the best decision I ever made because a clock in a clock out. And then like, I go home and I'm not worried about it. And, you know, and there's just, then I can explore other parts of like, you know, that interests me. And that's just like one of those things that like, you've got to switch your mindset. And especially like, because just so much value in America gets put on what you've got, you know, you know, by hustling and like, oh, that means it almost equates to your value as a human being, being the amount of revenue that you can make. And, like, and it puts you into uncomfortable situations where you're going to take a job opportunity that pays more, but they treat you like shit or something like that. But, you know, you get the clout, like where if you learn to live with less shit, then you would need less money and people would be forced to treat you like a human being. And that being the determining factor on how people get influence you rather than money. And so that's what I said, like chase, like do what you want because you care about it. Even if it doesn't make a ton of money, you know, fuck it. Not everything, not everything needs to, and you can learn to adapt like that. It was something you're passionate about. You know, don't always just table these things you care about because there's not enough money in it. I think it's very poignant advice and no matter what endeavor you pursue, especially if it's a creative endeavor, you have to sacrifice regardless. So it comes with the territory. So no, I think that's incredibly poignant. I, I am interesting uh, very briefly on your thoughts on screen printing, because just anecdotally for myself, technically I tried it and it was something that I just completely would just, you know, the ADHD brain, it just gets the best of me. Oh, for um, sure. What has been your experience with that kind of going back, you know, into when you were studying and uh, just some of your thoughts, if you could opine on that a bit, I'm curious. Yeah. So screen printing is a, it's a tricky thing. So I, my first interaction with it ever was in high school, uh, just, you know, art class kind of thing. Like I found that as a medium, uh, I grew up in that old tobacco town, Winston-Salem I talked about. So I used to go out with my friends and we would just go around all the abandoned tobacco warehouses with a camera and take pictures. And then we take those pictures and put them in the photocopier and crank the contrast and everything a bunch of times until you got like kind of a stencil. And then we cut the stencil out and screen print like that, like just super, you know, high school art class, class jank, but it was super fun. It was just such a weird way to like very, you know, pre Photoshop like way to manipulate images and get it onto a piece of paper. Um, so when it came up later in life, and I was like, okay, you know, I want to learn how to do this, like, you know, for my band. Because we definitely printed a couple of t-shirts in my, in my friend's uh, bedroom for our high, our high school band. And, uh, you know, I've still got one. It's so awful, but it's, I've never been so proud of anything in my life. I still, like, I won't <laughs> let, let go of it. But so when you get into uh, screen printing commercially, that's where the thing is, like, it, it draws a lot of artistic people because, you know, it's art and bands and stuff like that. Uh, but you miss the part about the commercial screen printing. It's work. It's like a lot of work. And there's a lot of um, kind of math, science, and luck that go into it. And that's what I love about it because the, the like, daily experience of going in, seeing, okay, here's X boxes of unprinted t-shirts and then turning the equipment off at the end of the day, and there's Xboxes of fully generated things that go to is such like I would not be happy working at a computer. I, like I that fulfilling 
of like process A to B and the genesis of something new is, you know, I love it. Like, I don't care how much I get paid to do it. That's just, if I'm going to fill my eight hours a day doing something, like that's how I enjoy to do it. And there's enough like um, just material science that's kind of snuck in there. It, it gets, I mean, I could, t- I could talk for a year about screen printing, but like you got to think like a cotton t-shirt versus, you know, a tri-blend shirt or completely different materials. They're going to react to temperature completely differently. So you have to use different inks for it. And it's, it weeds people out really quick. And I of hate course. to say that because I love, like, I love people with an artistic spirit. And when they come in there, I'm like, all right, like you could absolutely love this. But there's a lot of work too. And there's a huge learning curve. And that's like one of those things whenever anybody asks me, like, I'm thinking about printing my own t shirts, what equipment do I do I need? I'm like, my advice to you is to not do that. Just yes. pay somebody who knows how to print to do it and focus your energy and resources on the creative side of it because it is so much work to learn how to do it. But once you get a hang of it, it's a blast, man. Like it is. And it, I mean if you are listening to this and considering doing it, I would just go and find a screen printing shop in town. Ask if you can get a job. They'll put you at the bottom of a dryer, catch the t-shirts. And you just hang out in that environment for a little bit. And if you hate it, just get out of there. And you didn't spend <laughs> thousands and thousands of dollars on equipment. Well, it's interesting that you mentioned the material sciences aspect of it. I actually find that very fascinating. But even just when it comes to the tactile feeling of a screen print, it's unbeatable, especially oh, yeah. for fine garmentry. Oh yeah, no, that's that's you can't. I I I use that little sales pitch on people all the time, especially because bands I tour with, like I always want to print for them, and I don't work for a cheap shop. I work for a bougie shop. Like we do mm-hmm. all the water based printing and like specialty inks and stuff that other shops won't touch. Because like the guy I work for, he's got uh, over twenty five years of experience. Like I mean, I'm over ten and everything. Like. There's just places that won't do what we will. And I always tell people, um, like in today's day and age, everybody downloads your music. You know, they're not going to have a lot of physical things with your band's name on it, except for that t-shirt. You better make sure that t-shirt counts. And I'm telling you, you can get a cheap one, like printed by like, you know, somebody who just undercut whatever shop by a quarter of t-shirt. And it's going to come out like crap. And then like people aren't going to wear a shirt that makes them look bad. Like that's the reality of it, dude. So, you know, a, an actual well-screen printed shirt, especially if you get a nice discharge print where it's like an acid that sucks a pigment out of the dye and just has no feel. Oh, can't beat it, guys. You can't beat it. Let's actually touch a little bit more on merch before we okay. move back to Alasana because this is very fascinating. Okay, let's talk about the evolution of merch because certainly hearkening back to the Warped Tour era, merch mm-hmm. has always been important. You know, of of course, it's always been a revenue source for bands, but it's always been great just from an aesthetic quality. But merch has taken on a life of its own ever since the mid 2010s in terms of becoming fashion. Merch truly elevated itself to fashion. And that was something I never predicted. I was like, wow. So maybe speak a bit on just your sentiments on how merch has evolved from just being a component of a concert to being fashion in and of itself. It is, and it's, you're 100% right that it has changed. And it's interesting because if you try to put fashion and music and then like, let's say live music events and merch in completely different columns, you would never 
be able to, you know, tally things out. They're all kind of part of the same thing. It's all part of that scene culture and lifestyle where the lines are blurred between each one. And so, because I mean, I've seen bands that I swear they were more of a clothing line than they were a band. Like the music was yep. like, okay, but the merch was incredible. And like, it was like literally like a line out the door for, and like my favorite uh, throwback was uh, um, there used to be a Norma Jean shirt that was just as Norma, Norma Jean and kind of red cursive font. I had just two crossed rifles. And then like, that was the shirt. Like it was really so simple, but I swear, like my space days, like we're talking about like, you know, 2004 Dennis was like, I finally got one. And I was like, oh my God, my profile picture is about to change. And like, and it is, it's like those weird little things. And it's, it is, I think it's good because bands, especially now, it is very hard to make money as a band, especially I, my heart goes out to every support band that we take out, any younger band that's getting started. Like, dude, I talk about a, a romantic for champions of lost causes. Go out there and, you know, burn bright. I mean, starting out with a low guarantee, inc incredible gas prices, outrageous merch cuts. Like, your only chance is to get a killer design on that table and, like, cross your and rock the kids and then get a great shirt on that table and try to move it because like, that's how bands make money. Like, I don't think a lot of kids realize that They're like, if we're not touring, you know, and, and we're not like pulling something from our merch store, like that's it, dude. Like Spotify streams are pennies, dude. Like, and that's it. So, and especially if you want to support a band buy every shirt they got, you know, like that's how you do it. You, you let them know that you are listening, you're supporting and everything. And it honestly, you know, like the more bands see that happening, the more inclined they are to put out new stuff or put out like, okay, like that one did well, let's take it to the next step. Let's make a more interesting design, more colors, like something different, like, you know, crank it up from just like the one color black shirt. I think that's some game. I think that's excellent. Um, no, it's, it's so important to articulate that, but yeah, to your point, merch has become so significant in terms of not only aesthetic, but just as, as a very substantial business component to being in a band, um, touching back on Alisana, you know, I've noticed that Alisana has evolved quite a bit over the years. How do you think your role and style as a vocalist have changed with the band's evolution? So much, so much. I laugh. So my wife does a lot of her social media and so she's seeing a lot of these messages that come up and it's crazy. So Alisana's number one song of all time is apology. And it was one of the first songs we ever wrote. It was the first song on our first EP. And I always laugh. I'm like, I was like 18 when I wrote that, you know, I'm a 37 year old man. And it's funny because like, I don't get me wrong. I love playing it. I love how much it means to people, but I'm like, are and like so so many people are like you know here alisana they're like oh apology i'm like dude i've put out so much music since that song <laughs> like if you listen to our last album and like every artist is going to tell you their last album is their best album and i stand by that i think confessions is 100 our best album and i love lyrically all this fun stuff i got to do with it because like like i said like i think the best inspiration you can get for lyrics it comes from stuff that are completely not lyric related. You know, it's like, there's a lot of references 
to, you know, like time travel and stuff with Einstein and the theory of relativity. There's chess references. There's references to like uh, fine art and stuff. There's just like those Easter eggs that I just thrown all out there. So I think as a lyricist, as a vocalist, I definitely, you know, I'm very comfortable with my own skin now. Sean and I, especially as it's been such an unexpected, but uh, fortuitous collaboration because it is so much different writing lyrics with someone else because you have an instant fucking bullshit filter. <laughs> it's just because when you're writing lyrics, I mean, it's a lot of work, like the, trying not to repeat yourself, especially once you've written six albums, you know, seven albums, like you're going to regurgitate something that you said forever ago and you forgot. And someone else would be like, dude, you wrote that line, like literally like five albums ago, like here it is, like, okay, it's gone. Or you're like trying to make something work and you're really trying to like make two things connect and you jump the shark and you're kind of on the fence about it. The other person's there to be like, dude, nah, you keep going, you can do better. And so we are so comfortable working together and in our own skins that it is a very, you know, the art is elevated above ego. So we're going to get the best version of every song to happen just because yeah we are i wouldn't we're not passive aggressive whatever the opposite of passive aggressive is overtly in your face it gets dealt with immediately and then you move on so between that and uh you know once you've with screaming anyway and it's funny because so many people ask me like so what kind of scream technique do you do you fry scream do this i'm like man i've got literally no idea like when I started, there was there was no Melissa Cross. There was nothing. I just like I kind of figured out how to do it. And like you know, I'm sure someone on the internet can tell you what I'm doing, but I personally do not know. But the longer I've done it, I haven't lost my voice, so I'm clearly doing something right. And the longer I do it, the more uh, comfortable I am with like you know knowing what my capabilities are. You know how uh, a high scream can flow into a low growl or vice versa and uh so i kind of like know like little tricks that i can play off of and then put things intentionally in the lyrics like oh i could do like the real quick like high low like da -da -da -da, like right there so yeah you know it only gets better like a fine wine of course well you know it's interesting you mentioned that and you know your experiences, of course, with screaming, your experiences in the band, you touched on the fact that people do find iconography in specific songs as opposed to the most recent work. But I think, in my opinion, that's because your influence on the scene is undeniable. So that's actually a very good thing. It's just, you know, you placed a marker that has withstood the test of time. But Heck I would... Yeah. Of course. And speaking to that, I'd love to hear your thoughts on the current state of the scene, you know, and yeah. just kind of where you fit into that landscape, but also just your thoughts having been with it this entire duration of time. Yeah. Um, let's say from, so let's say, so the reason I ended up in, and I, I have no idea what genre we are. I've always said just like screamo, but I was laughing. Like my, my wife does social media and she said, she pulled up someone on the Screamo subreddit and they asked something about Alisana and all the comments were just like wrong subreddit post hardcore. I'm like, what? Like, okay. 
<laughs> so the reason I ended up in whatever genre Alessana is, is because I got metalcore when I was listening to metalcore and when I started the band had, I think like unearthed oncoming storm had just come out and it was like these crazy breakdowns. And it kind of started this like nuclear arms race of breakdowns where it's just songs started being more breakdown and less song. And not that, that album's amazing. I'm just saying that, like, after that, there's you started hearing more and more. It's just like, and that never really interests me. That wasn't what I was listening to metal for. Like I said, I was like a North Carolina between the bear and me guy. So I was looking for some real artsy, you know, metal. And so the idea of jumping genres was a lot more appealing to me because I have a traditional metal scream, which just wasn't really what people were doing in the screamo, post hardcore, whatever you want to call it. I was happy to be doing something different. And in our genre, I feel like we're, I don't want to say old man. We're very not set in our ways. I am a big, I'm put, I'm a big fan of organic art. Like I, when I hear an album, I like to hear pig scratches and people breathing and not every single drum like snare hit get replaced and auto tune and stuff so we're very i like it gritty still and i feel like a lot of music is phasing very much away from that which is not something that you're going to hear us do which is no, and no disrespect to anybody you know especially in like the edm scene and like that like and so i think that's where we're going to continue to stand out that we're are always going to write long format. It's going to be like, you can tell it's just six dudes with instruments. And uh, not that I think there's anything wrong with like, you know, incorporating a lot of digital elements, but we did, uh, when we did our album with Epitaph, uh, a place where the sun is silent, we decided to like throw the kitchen sink on the recording budget. And so we had like, there's choir part. If you listen to the album, there's choir parts, there's like trumpets, there's uh, a string quartet. Like all those are real people. Like we went to a church and mic'd up like a sanctuary and had a kid's choir singing. And it's like so awesome. I think you can tell too. And so for, for me, that's where I think we'll, we'll stay on, on that side of the, um, of the scene. Okay, well, fair enough. Well, in that case, in your journey with Alisana, what have been some of your most challenging and rewarding moments? Um, I'm particularly interested in any standout experiences you've had. Um, the moment, well, so I will say, okay, so from our early days, when we were just a MySpace band, let's say circa 2005, 2006, uh, you know, and MySpace was you know, it's its own little world. And we were a pure volume MySpace band. I remember and, pure volume. Oh, it was the best. Yeah, like I could, I course. still laugh. Cause I could, I couldn't believe it. Like you could just put your music out and anyone could listen to it. Uh, <laughs> so we got hit up by uh, a guy in Mexico in Monterey to see if we would come down there and play a show. And this is when we were like, just starting out. Like I literally, like we played around like North Carolina. Cause when it starts, as a band, it, I call it the spiral where you play like the same venue a bunch of times. And then suddenly you're playing venues around the city and then you're playing cities 
around your state and then a couple states around it, you know, just kind of circles out from there. So we were still very in the middle of the beginning of the spiral. And uh, we were just like, sure. I mean, it was like way back in the day, we were like, oh, I was like 20 years old. Like, fuck it. Why wouldn't I just talk to this random dude on the internet and show up in Mexico and believe something's going to happen? So we did. And we booked uh, a couple of shows in Mexico and like, I mean, that had been 2006, 2007. And somebody brought like a video camera and, you know, obviously our songs aren't in Spanish. And so we didn't know what we we're going to expect. And it was absolutely fucking crazy. Like it was sold out with all these like amazing, like Mexican, like super hot topic scene kids. And then a video came out of apology and everyone in that room singing every word. I'm like, how did they know? Like, how do they know these words? And then that was like video getting out is what got us picked up by like uh, our management and fearless records. And so we owe so much to that moment of like, just going for it. And we, uh, nobody else was going down there at that point. Like that was just like, and I'm sure because people, you know, were cautioned by agents and people who have been in the business and are reasonable not to like, just randomly show up, but we didn't have any of that. <laughs> we just did it. And so, you know, here we are. But we still have such like an insane like uh, Latin American fan base. And I think a lot of it's from that, from just like going down there and putting our flag down for for Screamo like so many so many years ago. And it's still amazing every time we go down there. We're trying to get down there like next year, and it's a very volatile market. Like promoters like pop up and disappear like all the time. Like we've supposed to have been returning for like three years now and then like the deal fizzles and everything but this one looks like it's pretty firm so next year uh hopefully we can get some mexico and south america and uh, so if any of you kids are, are listening to this we're trying and we're going to come back well people are going to be excited i'm going to be there i spend a lot of time in mexico whenever i can so i'll go Oh, really nice. yeah so i'll definitely dude, go if you're going to uh, be in mexico uh it'll be awesome dude. It'll, it'll be fun it's always a blast Good yeah absolutely I want to um, segue very briefly, Dennis, and talk about anime because I know you and I both love anime. Yeah. I just, I would love to just hear you opine on the topic yeah. because it's something we're both so into. Oh god, what, I can't remember which episode I was listening to, but you were just like rattling off like Vampire Hunter D, Berserk. I'm like, okay, Classic. he knows what's going on. <laughs> yeah, uh, and so actually, speaking of of merch and things, we put out some shirts in our web store at my behest that are Sarah's Victoria from Helsing. And I was like, I insist on a Helsing shirt. And it's so funny too, because uh, the girl who designed it, uh, a young lady named Danny, who's a tattoo artist, and a huge fan of Alisana. I was talking to her uh, at one of our shows because she's like an anime tattoo artist. And I was like, I've got this idea to do Sarah's Victoria from Helsing, but do her as like Alisana Army is like the name of our fan group, like as an Alisana Army thing. She's like, okay, I'll draw it up. And she drew it up. And it's like, I mean, you can see her areola and shit. <laughs> I was just laughing because I'm like, we got to dial it back just like a little bit. <laughs> and it's, but it's definitely like busty waifu, like Sarah's. And then she's like, um, can I, can we, we put my favorite lyric on it too? And I'm like, what lyric is it? She said, my thirst for blood turns me on. I was like, I can think of nothing better on a vampire <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, like dude that shirt i laugh so hard because we put it in the web store 
it was like, well, people are going to have an opinion about this one. <laughs> I mean, it, it did so well, but I laughed so hard because it is like, if I like my high school metal band was called the Cromwell initiative. And as a reference to, uh, Alucard and Helsing's like his final, like unlocked form of like activate the Cromwell initiative and everything. So it was a deep cut. Oh, dude, yeah. So that when you were, I heard you talking about some of the older animes, I was like, dude, and Berserk, come on. And that's the other thing I was laughing about because thinking about like a loving a love for like old tradespeople and stuff like that, dude. Like anyone who watches anime, the coolest character in every anime is the blacksmith. You know this, the old blacksmith out in the woods, just making weapons. And talking about the way things used to be, I'm like, that's it, dude. Like, it's all Holy right shit. there for you. It's like I've he's always the biggest that. badass, dude. It's so sick. The blacksmith character, of course. The weapons, the armor. Yeah, he's always out there. Guts is out there, just swinging that sword in the wood. But it's the blacksmith just hanging out. You know, just he's always talking about you know the ancient techniques and stuff. I'm like, that's where the the true badass comes from. And in like. Uh, in Helsing, what was it? The butler with the wind of death. Like the like ever he just seemed like a nice little dude till those little wires come out. I'm like, dude, yes. So it's there. Everybody everybody agrees with me. You just don't realize it yet. It's been waiting for you to rediscover these lost arts. Lost arts. I you know, speaking to that quickly, and I'd like to to continue this topic of anime, but I've always considered no, I have to mention this. When it's when I talk about lost arts, is it just because I've aged out of hardcore dancing or is hardcore dancing not in its prime? I actually don't know. And I want to know what you think. So, I have definitely aged out too. I I remember the last pit I got into because I was so excited. Uh, this band called The Red Chord. And yes. I used to really love them. And, I went and they played and I was... Man, uh, in my late 20s and I was like yes like I'm getting in the pit I got the pit kicked to the stomach and within five seconds I was like I am not getting in the pit ever again <laughs> um, it's dude it's still, the pits are different it's a lot it's a lot more like slam dancing is coming back much more than like you're talking about like actual like crazy mm. like spin kicks and like everybody is pretty much like a not like it was back in the day with everybody doing like crazy cartwheels and spin kicks and stuff. But I swear, and I don't know why it's happening, but there is more. It's the front row that the crazy shit keeps happening. Like I played a show. Uh, it wasn't the last tour, but the one before that where I had to break up a fight between two girls that were just going at it in the front row. I'm like, what is going on? I'm like, stop hitting her. And the girl looks at me and screams, she bit me and points at her arm. There's like blood. And I'm like, what? And it's just like this. It's the front row drama. And it's the craziest. Like the pit is the pit, but it's always, some, I've seen uh, some girl pull a knife in the front row, arguing over who is like up against the barricade. I'm like, y'all like, remember how to act. Like, Who's bringing in the knife to the Alice Santa show, dude? Calm down. Okay. So I want to just mention maybe the slam dancing components of this could be the new metal influence. Do you think it's the it. new metal influence and the convergence of all this? I hope it is. It, it is. Uh, and I'm a new metal kid. That's where I started. Uh, Slipknot, 100%, System of Down. And it's the, I find 
slam dancing and unpretentious and such a raw, sincere expression of the emotions that I'm trying to radiate off that stage. So more power to you. I love a nice hardcore dancer. Uh, just because it was back in the day, it is, I mean, it's almost like a contest, <laughs> but just like who can do like the craziest fucking like, like, and we used to do one. I mean, like when I was a much younger man and I didn't care about getting hit constantly where we would do like chicken fights. Cause like my friends, my friends and I are like big time nerds, big time metalheads. So of course we had to take hardcore dancing to like the most obnoxious extreme. So we would have one of our friends, wheelbarrow the other one so like the guy would get down on his hands and kick his legs up and wrap around the body of another guy and then he'd wrap his arms under his stomach and lift him up and then that guy just spins his arms just windmills and we would do two of them just like that in the middle of the pit just like maximum carnage and that's just what it was but you know it's a different time and it's probably for the best it's probably for the best and that's not what it's like you know i I want to agree with you, and yet, to the earlier point, I do consider, unironically, hardcore dancing, at its peak, the greatest of all lost art forms. Uh, and yeah, I, dude, that's a hill I'm willing to die on. My my wife would 100% agree with you. It's just Fantastic. Because like, she's like, like, I know, she's like, I know I shouldn't say this, but like, I kind of miss people just getting knocked out in the pit. <laughs> I was like, it was a different time. It was where, you know, it was a different time and somebody would pick you up and make sure you didn't die. You know, of like, I don't know how people would react now. <laughs> just stop the show. But yeah, it used to be like, I mean, you would go to a metal show and it would be like just a, a line of people getting drug out. And that was just part of it. And like, you just accepted it. And it was kind of beautiful because it was a safe space to do that. But it's much different now. You you couldn't get away with things like that. I would like to actually hear, and I'm going to reference mine. I would actually like to hear your greatest pit memory. And I'll tell you what mine is. And I think you'll appreciate this. 2006, Norma Jean concert at the Masquerade in Atlanta. The lead singer climbed into the rafters. And I remember it was the breakdown for The End of All Things Will Be Televised. I hope I got the song title right, mm -hmm. but it was basically when he's like, the South is on fire. And I remember three separate mosh pits opened up and I remember my friend, he was flailing. And the next thing I know, concussed, two of my friends are carrying him out and he's just, you know, his head's back like this. But that set me up for the rest of my life in terms of just that brutality of hardcore dancing inspired so much of my art from that day forward in Atlanta. And I would like to oh, hear... Yeah. Dude, and you're talking yeah. about the old masquerades, the, the lumber mill one. I don't know when the, the last one. time you... Yeah, because whenever I hear the masquerade, that's the one I think about. I know they've been at their new location for a while, yep. but... Man, uh, for me, so... And this is a very important band for anybody listening to go listen to. It's called Prayer for Cleansing. Now, these dudes, like, North Carolina Metal was kind of very... Uh, incestuous with his members. So all the members jump from all of his bands. So some of the dudes in prayer for cleansing, uh, the two guitarists are now the vocalists and guitarists in between the bear and me. And there's like members oh. from all over the place. So this is the band from before that. And they had just stopped. They had just broken up like right when I got into them. Like I was on the very tail end and I was so pissed because I would listen to them all the time. And I was like, I was so close. I was right there. Like, I went to my first show, like maybe like two months after their last show. And then they played a reunion show. And like, while I was still in high school, that was 
probably 2003-ish. And I went down to Charlotte, North Carolina, to a big venue. And I've just never seen anything like it. Like, it was crazy. And it was, like, these dudes are, like I said, it's, like, all vegan, straight-edge, like, metalcore. So the dudes uh, from all the bands that played played as a cover band of Earth Crisis called Destroy the Machine as the oh, wow. opener and stuff. And, like, so we're talking about, like, that level of hardcore. And it yeah. was it was just mayhem. And like, I was in the front, like trying so hard to get to the front row, just getting like obliterate. And every time you look back, like the pit was enormous, like, and you would just see people going fucking crazy. And then you'd look up and it's back when like stage diving, wasn't this shy, like get up to the front and then point and then like dropped out. It would do cannonballing off that stage. Like, and it's just, it's, it's, sounds terrifying while i'm describing it but it's such like it an energy and like a moment like you could never it was like electrifying and like you're all part of that same same moment and uh god they they played another reunion show literally last year for uh a benefit for a guy named john rivera and the winston-salem music scene who did a lot for the music scene he passed away so all these old old bands got back together and raised money and it was so awesome because it was i was like i'm not gonna go up front you know i'm almost 40 i you know i'm not gonna go get like hit and stuff but dude after i watched the first like couple bands i'm like i have to be up front like i do not care what happens to my body and like it's so great because that's the pull and that's what i would say like live music will always have that and there's just something you can't synthesize and covid reminded people of how much like I, as a species we hunger for that connection with one another and being in those kind of settings and i feel like when people leave that show and they're buzzing you know and like that's because they they've satisfied like a primal need that just doesn't get doesn't go away I think that's incredibly poignant. Yeah, and it it does feel at this point, I mean, that it was such a special time in alternative music history, you know, that can't be recaptured, but maybe it absolutely can, but you know, the future is yet to be determined. I think That's right. I think Dennis that brings us to our final question and I I would love to hear your thoughts on Alasana booking ahead. What can we expect from you and Alisana? Are there upcoming projects or new directions you're excited about? Tell me everything. Yeah. Um, So 100% we're working on new music. I get bugged about this all the time. I've had a lot of stuff happen in my personal life, and I will take the full blame for it have taken a very long time, but we are working on new stuff, and we're very excited about it. Um, But like I said, we're a slow burn band, dude. Like We're not going to drop like a little snippet of a half-baked project. That's not what we do. We build... We, we do world building, so, you know, be looking on that. We're definitely very focused on it this year. Um, this upcoming year, the last two years, we've been doing something called the Trilogy Tour, which is our Annabelle Trilogy, which encompasses The Emptiness, A Place Where the Sun is Silent, and Confessions, which are all part of the same storyline, weaving all three albums together. Uh, the last two years, we have performed the first two albums in full, and we're not going to stop that. We're going to play confessions the final album in full uh all around the country this year so come out check it out the live show is is the thing and uh you know we got inv- we got invited to the dance this year when we were young we're there guys so 
we'll be we'll be up there on stage playing uh the emptiness and outside of that uh, it's just me touring kicking it with my my wife and my daughter we run the alisana web store out of my basement so you know if you see stuff pop up and new t-shirt designs i've i've got the reins now so i print the shirts i handle the design so i try to keep it fresh for everybody so if you see anything pop up it's it's me helping pack that order and to send it to you so go grab a shirt man absolutely love it well i'm excited to see you when we were young absolutely man thanks so much for having me it's been an absolute honor dennis thank you for being here and we'll talk so soon man thank you so much brother absolutely thanks guys thanks